This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. San Francisco, the breeders there, Invisible Man. Thanks to Matt for burning violet. Three after four, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Action-packed show. I've got in the studio Katie and Andy. They're from a play called Adam Eve Protocol. Chatting to them real soon. Then at 4.20, I'll be talking to Phil Solomon about his Fringe production. It's showing at Hair Hole next Monday, Tuesday. And at 4.40, the wonderful Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families and Queer Space joins me with Dan Christie from Fostering Connections talking about to caring and being queer in a forum they had last night for the LGBTIQ community. But let's start with the uh, Adam and Eve Protocol. It's a play. It's showing as part of Fringe and it explores what happens after the fall of mankind following a nuclear war between the US and North Korea. And it asks the question, what if Eve was a lesbian? I'm joined in the studio by the actors from the production, Andy Millington, who plays Adam, and Katie McIntosh, who plays Eve. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. It's a great pleasure, Katie. Let's start with you. Is Eve a lesbian? Well, you know, everybody's a little bit gay, so I think, you know, take from that what you might. Uh, it's set 200 years in the future, so I'd say she would be already pretty pretty progressive. It's not about whether or not she's a lesbian. It's about whether or not she's going to let just anyone impregnate her. Well, that's a bit of a dilemma because there's only <laughs> one man on, on Earth left. That's, that's you, Andy. You play Adam. Tell us about his character and the conflicts of masculinity he might be encountering as a consequence of being the last man on the planet. Well, yeah, I mean, being the last man on the planet, he has to find himself again, I guess. So, Is know. that challenging as an actor for you to kind of explore that? How do you interpret him? Well, I see him struggling with himself internally and, um, you know, letting out his frustrations externally. 
Right. Yeah. So, Katie, I, I've, I've read that uh, your character, Eve, is a bit of an intergalactic hero. Tell us more about, about that. Well, I think she is based on the writer-director, Donna Prince, herself, and if she could write herself a dream part, this would be the part. So she's a mad sci-fi fan, loves Doctor Who, Star Trek, you name it, but she also kicks a whole lot of butt. She is known for the cool teacher at school that explodes shit, and um, she took a lot of um, leaves out of her own book when she was writing this character and basically made Eve into the most badass chick in the universe. She doesn't take crap from anyone. She will break things if she has to. And she's honestly not going to let anyone tell her what to do just because uh, Trump pressed that big red button. I was going to ask you about Trump uh, and the war with North Korea. What does the play explore about how that happened? Was it because Trump had a psychotic episode or just happened to... Well, I don't want to give away too much. You'll have to come and see it. But uh, let's just say there is a big red button. There is a Trump and he does something very Trump-esque with that big red button. So are you the only actors in the play or does someone play Donald Trump? Well, actually, that's, a f- that's funny that you asked that. So there's a few others in the play. There's two other characters that are living and breathing characters and one other main character that is actually not human, but I won't give that away either. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, Andy here gets to, let's just say, slip into the skin of Trump himself at some point. Wow, tell us about that. It's uh, something else, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so how did how did Adam end up being the last man on Earth? Like, what's his story? Well, um, I don't know how much detail I could really go into talking about that. Well, no, I think like his it's basically random. It's random. It's as random it is, as it, yeah. yeah. Like the whole thing is yeah. that there is absolutely no mathematical equation to it. It's just luck of the draw. Mm. He's the last dude. She's the last chick. And the only reason they kind of get thrown together is. Seriously random. Now, Adam, yeah. there is, or I should say, Andy, there is a, a Melbourne connection to the play. Yes. So you sit in two locations, yeah? One's uh, what turns into a wasteland just north of Melbourne. Yes. And the other is the space station. Now, tell us about the significance of those locations in the play. Once again, is it just random? Like, what goes on in those locations? I'm trying to get a sense of, of, of place here, I suppose. Well, yeah. Um, on the space station... Um, I do discover that, you know, we're obviously orbiting the globe very fast uh, up on the space station, and I want to get back down to Earth, back to where my home used to be. So, you know, I I want to be put down to where I know and explore again. And the ship drops him down there yeah. um, to see if there's any signs of life, basically. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, and this is after being, and I can, we, we can, we can tell you this much. Yeah. They've been frozen cryogenically. Over two hundred years, yes. and they've just woken up. Wow! Yeah. yeah, so that's what happens. It opens with shh. So there's all that Adam shock at work as well. It's not like you know you've been following CNN religiously and you've seen what you know ha- has happened in the build-up. All of a sudden, no, you yep. wake up and boom. there's Trump Everyone's and boom. Dead. Pretty much, Everyone's yeah, right. Dead. You're on a ship and you don't know what the hell has happened. And yeah. uh, so Adam, Adam gets woken up first. He's on a different space space station, like a life raft, a la Elon Musk BFR kind of situation, mm-hmm. um, and. He, he's woken up and he gets sent to Earth and he's starting to look for some signs of life. Then he finds out that there's also on another space station somewhere in the uh, galaxy, there is this woman who is the last woman and this other character who is not human, well, it's their job to make sure that the survival of the human race happens no matter what and that is the initiation of the Adam and Eve protocol which is the impetus for the whole play mm-hmm. so were your were your roles really quite emotionally challenging i mean i, ma- I imagine yes. it was a bit of a roller coaster mm-hmm. can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about that let's start with you andy what kind of emotions did you tap into beyond the kind of shock and awe kind of stuff because i guess you were very conscious of not kind of acting out emotional cliches mm. well look i have to get um emotional in the sense that uh you know i'm coming to terms that initially i think i'm the last man on earth um, so there's that. Uh, there's times where I'm just very frustrated because I'm searching and I can't find anything. There's nothing. I'm by myself. Mm. So there's that frustration. Mm. Starts to lose it a little bit. Goes yeah, a bit cuckoo, I go a little bit cuckoo-cuckoo, as it were. Um, Hallucinations. Yeah, all kinds of things happen to me. So I'm just on this emotional roller coaster, like you said. Um and it was a little difficult at times tapping into that because I'm not like that normally. 
So finding the character, it's, it's been good. It's been fun. What about you, Katie? Because your character's very different. She's really kick-ass, as, as mm-hmm. you said. So I imagine her emotional reaction was quite different. Yeah, well, she just wakes up and she's like, right, what the hell are we doing? Where am I? I'm going to drive this ship kind of thing. So she's the leader. Oh, yeah, she's the leader. She doesn't even really know or care about whether or not there's anyone else, um, let alone a male, to procreate with. She just wants to kind of um, get on with life and find out what's going on. And her instinct is to straight away go, all right, I'm going to fly this ship somewhere. But this other character who is initiating the protocol is basically trying to set her up to hook up with Adam and ensure the survival of the human race. And she's like, oh, excuse me, bitch. Like, what if I am a lesbian? Like, what if I don't like this guy? I've never seen him before. And so she kind of has to get really talked into having an open line of communication with this random guy who's on the wasteland Earth while she's on this ship miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away in space. And they start talking over the comms, right? And you see her soften slowly over time. You see multiple conversations happen. Never once have mm. they seen each other face-to-face. They've only spoken over the intercom, which is really fun to play because we're like probably about a metre away from each other on stage, but we create these two beautiful sort of worlds that are very separate and very different moods um, for the audience to watch. And your characters really challenge and turn on their heads gender stereotypes, don't they? I mean, it sounds like, mm-hmm. Andy, your character's the emotional conscience, if you like, mm-hmm. of humanity. And yours, is, uh, Katie, is, is, is kind of more pragmatic. Get shit done. You know, yep. um, the hunter-gatherer type, it you is. know? yep. So you completely turn that on its head. That's mm-hmm. kind of cool. It's really yeah, fun. Definitely. Wow. So um, did you find that it was challenging actually doing sci-fi on the stage? Because it's that's, that's rare. I know. Um, I have to say, when I first read the script, I wasn't sure how it was going to be done because you could either have a lot of stuff, a lot of equipment, but then you'd have to be really, really good and that would take a lot of money, right? So um, the way that it's been done is really clever and we've used minimal propage and yeah. uh, things that are versatile. So things that are, that are chairs in one scene – become, you know, space rocks in another. And, you know, there's like really cute little uh, flashing lights, sort of space stationy things and, you know, pops and bangs and cords get pulled out of things and smoke machines and it kind of creates this illusion of this really dank, dark, you know, like in Alien or Predator, those kind of hallways. That's what I can see when I'm walking around this ship on stage because we've created it with the mood, we've created it with, um, you know, the minimal sort of stuff that we do have. Um, and we've got these really cool, cool, like shiny, custom-made, like spacesuits. Yeah. So we look spacey. <laughs> so, are you both sci-fi fans? And did you find yourself, you know, watching lots of episodes of Deep Space Nine and mm-hmm. and and Star Trek Voyager uh, and TNG to prepare, <laughs> like, you know, to do the moves and how to walk in the oh. in the costumes? <laughs> no, I I'm, no? I like sci-fi. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not a like a maniac about it. Like, I had to get some help with some enunciation on certain technical words, like ailerons. Never heard those before, but now mm. I know kind of what they are. Um, and because Evie's, yeah, so badass and pragmatic. She builds escape pods, you know, she's kind of gung-ho. She has a soldering iron. Um, I had to learn how to actually look like I know how to use that sort of stuff, <laughs> um, which is fun. And um, if only if only we could actually lose gravity on stage, then I wouldn't wonderful. have to pretend. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Andy? Did you find yourself watching, you know, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and kind of, you know, focusing on Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc no. Picard? <laughs> like, like, did you... Did I'm more you... of a William Shatner man myself. Oh, are you? Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, I'm a sci-fi fan. Yep. I wouldn't call myself a fanatic as such, but um, I do enjoy sci-fi. Um, so I am familiar with a lot of the shows that, um, um, that Donna drew inspiration from. So um, it helped me build a character. There's some stuff in there that everyone knows, like yeah. Beam Me Down, Scotty. You know, everyone yeah. knows that. Even yep. if you're not familiar with Star Trek, you mm. kind of know what that means. So I think there's lots of references in there for people who like sci-fi and people who aren't sure about it. But because it's got Trump in it, people can relate to it. And yeah. did you did you find yourself watching lots of you know History Channel documentaries about North Korea and the and the and the US? <laughs> Don't have to. You just do. watch the it's news. Just everywhere. It's there. <laughs> yeah. Now the tell us about the process for actually writing this production. Tell us about Donna because it was all done in 24 hours, I believe, and mm. then she had to you know have it performed the next day. What can you tell us about that? Well, so we weren't actually involved in that process, but we know all about it. And for her, it was awesome fun because they wrote the play, I think it was even shorter than eight hours they had to write it, and then a couple of hours only to rehearse it and perform it with scripts, obviously. Um, 
But she absolutely loved doing it so much that she then afterwards fleshed it out a little bit more and made the Eve character come like to the front because initially it was focusing mostly on Adam. Um, but yeah, for her, she's I think she's doing another one of the, like she's but basically going to get kind of I think on the train now doing these all the time. It's her first Fringe show, something she's always wanted to do. She's a brilliant actress herself, a brilliant director, great to work with. Um, and I think um, that Melbourne should watch out because there's not many directors I've worked with that have actually built something like a little space console that actually has flashing lights, buttons that go off, and you know I can rip these wires out of the wall and they crack snap. Like, they go crack, snapple and pop every time. So it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome indeed. It's called the Adam and Eve Protocol. It's part of Melbourne Fringe. Give us the details so people can rock along or book a ticket. Yeah, sure. So if you go to the Melbourne Fringe website and you just navigate to the Adam Eve Protocol, you can book tickets um, online through there. They're really cheap. I think it's $25 for... Uh, adults 22 for concession That's for right. groups six plus you get yes. a, another discount so mm-hmm. take your friends um it's down in Peran, the space dance and art studio a really cute little venue uh, so very convenient there's lots of parking there too um and it's reasonably kid friendly so i think any anyone who's uh, around 14 15 years of age and over can come um and we're running the 21st of september 22nd 23rd 28th, 29th and 30th, 6pm each night for one hour only. Katie McIntosh and Andy <laughs> Millington from the Adam and Eve Protocol. Thank you so much for joining us down 3CR. Thanks, Thanks so for, much having for having us. having us, James. 16 after four, you're on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Mazzy Star.
California, Mazzy Star there, Blue Flowers, 20 After 4, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined by Phil Solomon. They've got a fantastic production happening as part of Fringe. It's called Together. It's happening next Monday and Tuesday at Hare Hole, Hares and Hyenas in Johnson Street, Fitzroy. And it explores what happens at a big, fat Egyptian party. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. So tell us, what does happen at this big, fat Egyptian party? Uh, Well, uh, it starts off fairly straightforward. Uh, I'm kind of inviting people in, uh, inviting them to eat the food that's there, the Egyptian food that's there, uh, and sort of talking to imaginary uh, guests, um, members of my family. And uh, and then the the dancing starts, and I start to um, to belly dance uh, as you do at a, a big fat Egyptian wedding, and uh, and it gets a little bit risque after that. <laughs> so, are you the only character in it? Wow, I, I, I'm the only actor. Yes, yeah, wow, or performer. Okay, so are there other people on stage as like props? No, 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 no. Uh, I interact with the audience a, a little bit. Um, we we get to play soccer later on in the in the performance, uh, but yeah, no, it's just me. And and I actually, when I first uh, came up with this idea, I actually had this idea that I was going to have twelve or eleven uh, football players with me as well, um, but. Over development and and um, you know uh, budget constraints and whatnot, <laughs> I thought, well, I, I could do it myself, and I don't really need anyone else because, uh, yeah, the story's about me somewhat. So, so it explores intersections. Uh, tell us about those intersections, yeah. and are they personal experiences? Definitely. I mean, the whole idea came from me learning about a, a football riot that happened in Egypt in two thousand and twelve. And this was as they were trying to get rid of uh, Hosni Mubarak, the dictator that had been there for 40 years. Uh, so this was during the Arab Spring or just after the Arab Spring. And uh, that uh, president had said if he gets kicked out, Egypt will fall into chaos. And then, surprise, surprise, this chaos, which resulted in thousands of, or hundreds of deaths, sorry, 72 deaths, maybe I shouldn't exaggerate, 72 deaths and, and lots of injuries uh, seem to be a political kind of um, uh, situation. And, uh, and so I started thinking about what actually gets people in that kind of state of mind where they would happily like attack other people uh, for God knows what purpose. Uh, uh, you know, like it could have been money, it could have been political, it could have been just their their football uh, passions inflamed. And so I applied that kind of thinking to all the different groups that I am part of. Uh, so I thought about my relationship to my family and the huge family that I have in Egypt. Uh, I thought about also other um, groups that I'm part of, like uh, the gay uh, group or the gay uh, community and how uh, it affects my body image and my, my sense of worth and military and, and, and other groups as well and religious groups as well. And so there's this kind of uh, the intersection between me and the greater Egyptian community and, and all those sort of interactions as well. Because uh, Egypt's a pretty rough place for the LGBTIQ community and just waving a rainbow flag at a at a concert can get you into a lot of trouble. Indeed. How does that transpose to your experiences as an Australian Egyptian man here well, who's gay? Well, well, I'm extremely lucky because I, I don't have to deal with that on a daily basis. Uh, and, and I did go to Egypt in 2007 where this uh, performance actually takes place uh, for part of it. Uh, so in 2007, I went to my sister's engagement party. She went over there. She got engaged within like a week. And uh, and I was over there at the time uh, just randomly. Uh, and, and so I kind of didn't really have to deal with that kind of stuff because I was dealing with my family. So I kind of didn't even – like I kind of put that to one side in a way. Uh, and just kind of dealt with all these people that I'd never met before who loved me unconditionally, which was really quite strange uh, because if they actually knew who I was, uh, they probably wouldn't. So uh, so that was the extent of it. But also my family in Australia, my immediate family, uh, my mother is extremely supportive and wonderful. She voted yes and, you know, she's, she's amazing. Uh, however, my father... To completely different story, and I'm not out to the rest of my family. So, um, to to kind of navigate those different uh, groups, 
um, is is difficult, but I, I'm extremely lucky that I was born in Australia and, and I live here. So, When you were in Egypt, were you scared that your sexuality would be found out and the potential ramifications of that? Um, a little bit. I mean, there were a lot of very attractive men in Egypt and uh, Egyptian men are not shy about eye contact. And although it might not be sexual, it's certainly very in your face. So it's really hard to kind of uh, just put, again, put that that side of me to one side and kind of, yeah, just... Was it confusing? I mean, when you were getting that eye contact, did you think it was a, a sexual thing? Yeah, yeah. Like, how do you deal with that? Well, um, not only eye contact, but also uh, Egyptian men are very uh, friendly with each other. So very tactile. Intimate. Yeah, very tactile. And, uh, and so, yes, it was very, very confusing and very frustrating uh, because... Uh, I'm not sure how how uh, true this is, but I feel like if I'd been white, I may have had uh, better chances uh, over in Egypt because I think if they they saw that I was Egyptian and they were they were probably worried that I might you know uh, rat them out to the authorities, so I didn't get approached by anyone. Whereas I think if I'd have been white and and obviously a foreigner, I might have had better luck. <laughs> so the the production also explores some of those funny things and some of those horrific things that happen in yeah. groups. And obviously, family groups can be emotionally draining or volatile sometimes. Sounds like there's a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster happening on stage. What happens? Yeah, so it it goes from like the really awkward uh, and and slightly hilarious um, interactions I have with my family. Uh, there's a bit of striptease. There's a bit of uh, um, you know soccer. There's there's uh, a military kind of march, uh, and there's a kind of um, there's a section where I. Um, I'm sort of faced with the torrent of, of uh, you know, buff men that I'm exposed to and uh, most gay men are exposed to as being part of the, you know, the hookup apps and, and that kind of stuff and, and my kind of uh, body image issues associated with that. And then it goes into the horror of the riot itself, of the that football riot that I mentioned. Um, and then it kind of um, goes into the kind of religious... Um, sphere that I that I sort of was uh, interacting with as a young uh, adult, and then kind of cast that off when I left home. But it, it, I think for me, it's it's not the black and white uh, situation of this is bad, this is good. It's kind of the the sort of confusion that I have in myself about religion, about my family, and whether I, you know, like I can't completely distance myself from them and I can't distance myself from my religion because it's kind of part of who I am. And and I'm really interested in that kind of, um, you know, trauma almost of like having to compartmentalize myself when I go and see my parents and when I see Egyptians um, that I don't know or, you know, um, distant family, I need to be a completely different person and I need to kind of uh, present this kind of good Christian boy uh, type uh, character who, you know, has a job and, and is doing well and is, is about to get married. Any moment now he's about to get married. So you have uh, to de-gay your life. I, I totally And your emotions. To and my emotions. And so I can't really last longer than a week with my family because that, that, uh, that constant pressure to, to be someone else – I, it's not me. It's it's really difficult for me because I'm in my my real life, with air quotes. Uh, I I'm you know fully open and 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 don't really hide very much. So it's quite difficult to kind of have to do that. So it's easier not to see people. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and and easier not to call people even because I find talking to my family even is quite draining. <laughs> so yeah, mm. the. Production together has some on-stage violence. Uh, doing a one-person show, how difficult is that to choreograph? <laughs> Extremely difficult. Um, I, I, I will say that I I started with this idea not as a performance artist or even an actor. I um, yeah, it was. I came up with the idea and then I started becoming a performance artist. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I'm constantly learning. And I did do a version of this show in Queensland last year at Metro Arts and, uh, and that was a huge learning experience. So I think 
I think I'm ready now to to fully call myself a performance artist. You talked about um, you know physical appearance and and body image. Yeah. Um, do you find in Australia as a Middle Eastern looking gay man that you know you're profiled a lot by you know you mentioned people for example on on apps yeah. are stereotyping you, but also people in the street, police. Um, and does that kind of happen in particular when there's stuff in the media that, that casts Middle Eastern people in a negative way? Yeah, look, I um, I had an experience where I was uh, minding my own business walking down a street in Sydney and, uh, and I got stopped by two police. And I had just recently been sort of assaulted by a guy who pretended to be a security guard. And so I was very on edge about authority figures in general. And uh, it turns out they were police, but I only found that out after they pushed me to the floor because I was trying to get away because I thought they were just being, um, you know, they were trying to get money out of me or something. And so uh, it turns out that they were looking for someone of Middle Eastern appearance and, and you know, I fit the description. And uh, and so I kind of had a, a bit of a... a a shocking run-in with with the law. Um, that kind of thing doesn't happen generally, but uh, you know that situation was quite significant for me. Did you find the police were more heavy-handed because they were looking for a Middle Eastern-looking person? Is that is that your sense of the situation? Look, I, I was pretty pretty adamant and pretty kind of. Um, so, so I kind of resisted for a little while, but they didn't really need to push me to the ground. They pushed me to the ground and handcuffed me, actually. And I, and I think that was probably a little bit overboard, um, even though I was kind of trying to get away. Not because I actually thought they were police, but because I, I thought they were actually not police, in fact. So, um, so that, was, that was a thing. But uh, but what in about terms- airports, like Sorry? going through airports as a Middle Eastern looking person, what's your experience like there? Do you find that uh, security is more, um, you know, keen to, to talk to you? It's actually funny. I, I've noticed that, in fact, it's the white old ladies and the, and the sort of very, uh, shall we say, um, non-suspicious people that actually get more hassled than I do, which is really funny. Wow. I, I, I almost feel like it's, it's like they're avoiding, uh, you know, hassling me because, you know, of all, all the stuff in the media. So it's an unexpected benefit of being uh, of Middle Eastern appearance. So it's more than New South Wales police need to look out for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the production's called Together. It's happening at Hairs and Hyenas. They're wonderfully supportive of, of queer art and uh, a diversity of queer art. They're actually incredible. I mean, they've been going for at least 25 years now and and how accepting they are and how uh, supportive they are of all kinds of, of, of performance and, and spoken word and, and just, you know, um, knitting groups and the, the whole spectrum of, of the queer community, but also the general uh, Melbourne community. Um, I, I love them. I really love them. And I'm so glad to be performing there. So the show's called Together. It's happening next Monday and Tuesday at Hares and Hyenas in Johnson Street, Fitzroy, out the back at Hare Hole. Uh, how can people get tickets? Uh, so if you go to the Melbourne Fringe uh, site... Uh, it's called Together on there, and you can look that up, or you can uh, get in contact with uh, Hares and Hyenas in, in Fitzroy. Uh, yeah, they're on the website. Phil Solomon, it's always great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. We've been chatting to Phil Solomon about Together. It's part of Melbourne Fringe. It's just after 4.30 on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Marvin Gaye and Tammy Tyrrell. Yeah. 
beautiful voice of Tammy Tyrrell and Marvin Gaye there. Ain't nothing like the real thing. It's 4.36. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Up next, I'll be talking to Rainbow Families Felicity Marlowe and Dan Christie from Fostering Connections, all about uh, foster care with an LGBTI perspective. In the meantime, though, here is Sade, and this track's called By Your Side.
The beautiful voice of Sade there by your side. It is 20 to 5. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I am joined by the wonderful Felicity Marlowe from Rainbow Families and Queer Space and the wonderful Dan Christie from Fostering Connections. They were involved in a forum last night that was uh, an information session, really, on being a foster carer focused at the LGBTIQ communities. Welcome. Hi, James. I've got the same question for you both. We'll start with you, Felicity. What's your favourite foster carer story? Look, I think foster care is an amazing way for people to make their families and it was really lovely last night there was a beautiful couple who talked about their experience of um, caring not only for one child but also then for his brother as well. And I think I love those stories where the department can see their way to keeping kids together and creating family for them and keeping them, you know, as united as possible. And I think those are the stories that I really love. I know another family has a similar situation where, you know, DHHS even saw to making sure that prior to kids being born that there was a placement for them to go and be with their siblings in foster care. And I think those are the stories you really need to hear because sometimes DHHS gets a bit of a bad rap um, and people do have to advocate quite hard for themselves. But the stories where you can see that siblings are being kept with siblings and that the foster carers themselves are doing a lot of advocacy to ensure that continues to happen is an amazing story. What about you, Dan? What's your favourite foster care story? There was another beautiful story last night, actually, of a woman and her partner. They um, are foster carers for a young Aboriginal boy, young fella. And they, I was really excited about over time how they built up an ongoing connection with that child's family and community. And they're so passionate about those ongoing connections to culture. They say it's essential. They say it's a foster carer's responsibility. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. I mean, I think it was a lovely story of intersectionality, if anything else, but also just a real empathetic understanding of maintaining that child's connection to culture resonated beautifully. And I imagine when dealing with rainbow families in particular, those intersections and intersectionality is something that you're really mindful of that perhaps mainstream um, services uh, need a bit of education with. Is that what you're finding? Look, all the families that spoke last night talked about the role they'd played in re-educating or educating the services that they had applied for. I think... um, One of the key things that was really clear is that the foster carers themselves took a lot of responsibility in explaining their sexuality or gender or their Mm. relationship status or what their family was to the children they spent time with. And there was actually a lovely man who spoke about having, I think, up to 20 sort of teenage boys with um, him and his partner. Some have lived there for years, some in and out of respite care or emergency care. Um, And over sort of 20 years where they've explained, look, we're, you know, my partner and I, we're together, you know, we're a couple. And not once has one of those children um, said anything negative to them. But they were so upfront and kind about explaining who they were, Um, you know, and I think it was a credit also to the kids who were like, Mm. if you're going to care and nurture for me, that's okay. And I think it sort of resonated last night as well is that, Kids are the least of the issue. <laughs> it is the services sometimes that need a little reminder that it isn't about people's sexuality or gender, um, that people can parent and nurture and care for kids no matter, regardless of those I parts would say of their as well though, that there was definitely a sense that there's been an evolution happening and that that understanding is growing and growing every day. Um, and I know working with Fostering Connections, we work with these services all the time and there's an ongoing self-education process and a real yearning to make sure that um, the experience of um, LGBTIQ plus carers are being taken into account that they are being supported properly and even last night the two people from the agencies that were there saying we're actively pursuing and educating ourselves ongoing about that to make it a safer space. So Dan tell us about the role and the work of, of Fostering Connections. So we're basically an umbrella brand across the state. We bring all the foster care agencies together to um, develop awareness about foster care and to try and find more foster carers in the community. Um, So we've been going for about two years and this week's been Foster Care Week. So we've done a lot of outreach into the community. We've had a lot of foster carers actually speaking about their experiences to try and make people connect with it's possible for them. Um, A big part we're trying to do is educate that it is possible for people in all walks of life and that it's just, you know, something you can do short term, long term, just for a couple of days. But there is a real need out there among young children because if foster carers aren't there, then children don't have safe homes. And that's a message we keep hitting home all the time. So, Felicity, are you finding that there is a greater need for for foster carers and what kind of issues are, are kind of spurring that? 
Look, we've heard from agencies such as Foster Care, um, Fostering Connections, and other agencies, and we do know that you know those a lot of those agencies you know promote themselves in queer newspapers. They are, have stalls at Midsummer Carnival, like they do a lot of outreach work. But I do actually think part of the educative process is for us to stand up as a rainbow family community and say, and as the LGBTIQ plus community and say, actually, there are th- some things that are culturally unsafe about your practice. Um, not always, but sometimes, like the way you address us in meanings or assumptions that are made about our ability to parent, um, the way forms are articulated. We did hear last night, you know, there was a concern that one um, group of parents raised about the transition from fostering to permanent care required them as gay men to do a blood test. And it wasn't that anyone else was asked to do that. They really felt like that was a quite a targeted question. So we're going to... It would have to have yeah, been. Yeah, we're going to do a bit of re- research and investigation into those sort of allegations because if that's the concern, those stories resonate really quickly in the community and put people off. And, and they shows put people a lack off. of understanding mm. of yeah. blood-borne virus transmission. Oh, and it seems like, a, seems like a really antiquated thing that we surely as a community have got over by now, that idea that gay men or gay men have HIV. So... Those were concerning to me to hear. Um, Other stories about, you know, comments that some assessors or social workers might make when they go into a home to see if it's suitable about, you know, where are they going to sleep and sort of people are very sensitive to those overt um, assumptions about their sexuality or about their gender identity. So we have Especially in relation to kids and... Totally. We've heard from trans... um, Women who feel like sometimes they're perhaps put down the bottom of the list a little bit because of their gender. Um, So we do feel like there's some advocacy we need to do as Rainbow Families Victoria to work with those agencies, but also to um, ensure that the community out there that want to be carers and that have that time and energy and passion to care for young children and often quite vulnerable young children and, and young people know that they're going to be safe too as carers. So I think it's a two-way thing at the moment. Um, mm. Definitely agree with Dan. A lot of progress has been made. But it's, again, one of those areas of um, prejudice, I guess, and stigma that still has that overhanging thing about can LGBTIQ people make good parents and mm. good carers? And we really need to do a bit more work in that area. So, Dan, what attributes do you look for in a foster carer? Look... Really, it's very open in terms of who can be a foster carer. You need to be over 18. Um, but in terms of you don't need to own your own home, you can rent, you can do, you can don't have to be working full time, you can work part time. Um, usually agencies will want you to have a spare room in your house. It doesn't happen in all cases, especially if you're going to foster very young babies, but usually they'll want you to have a bit of, a bit of space. Um, and in terms of the process you go through, they want to make sure that you know, you're at a good place in your life as well, that you're emotionally ready to have a child in your home. But really, people from pretty much any walk of life can become a foster carer. And do you have to be in a relationship? Does it have to be a couple? Not at all. Um, There are so many. In fact, we've been running panels this week um, as part of our celebrations and a number of the people on those panels were single and they were single foster carers. Some of them were single full-time foster carers that were working full-time and they still made it work for their lives. So there's so much flexibility around the process. And I suppose this is where the foster care agency that places the child with you is a major source of support because they help you through that. And even if you're working full-time, they can find ways to help you balance that with being a foster carer as well. Felicity, what about uh, rainbow kids, uh, kids that might be um, you know, questioning their sexuality or their gender identity? Uh, I imagine there's a lot of issues for them in terms of appropriate foster care placement. Is that something that Rainbow Families has been working on or are the numbers very small in relation to that that not many have come to your attention? Look, because we don't actively sort of do that of specific act- advocacy, um, I couldn't give you numbers or anything no. like that. But I do know just generally from working within queer space that homelessness and unsettled sort of housing options for um, queer and trans and gender diverse young people, particularly as they um, get into teenage sort of years, um, can be quite complicated. Um so we would definitely be advocating that those young people should be considered as um, kids that should go up for foster care. And I guess that's something else that is about that culturally safe spaces. Like if the LGBTIQ community can step up and say, I'll be a foster care or offer respite for other mm-hmm. queer or trans or gender diverse young people, then that's a really good culturally sensitive space for those kids to be in, particularly if their home life is perhaps not as supportive. Um 
And I guess like Dan was saying, there's so many intersectionalities that can come into play and, you know, it would be great to see that a consideration of young people's sexuality or gender comes into play in terms of placement. That would be something we'd definitely be advocating for. Do you find that more people in the LGBTI community post-marriage debate, post-legislation, post-victory and post-kind of, you know, the social acceptance that goes with all of that are more likely to put their hands up to be foster carers, whereas because of perhaps, you know, the stigma... Uh, and the lack of education amongst agencies they weren't ready to do that previously? That is a really interesting question. I almost feel like I'm not in Mm. the position to answer yet. I feel like some more water needs to go under the whole marriage equality bridge to decide. What's your gut feeling? To see. Look, my gut feeling is that people being able to say, I am legally married to my partner, this is my husband, this is my wife, may play quite well with some agencies because I think there is a stigma about the permanency of queer relationships in some the eyes of some agencies, I would absolutely say, or just, you know, in a general sort of sense. Um, You know, not naming any names, but I do think that that idea that, you know, maybe gay, bi or queer men don't have permanent relationships, that, um, you know, people who are, you know, trans don't have relationships that are long lasting. I think we need to have a bit of way, a way to go to bust some of those myths. Mm. Um, I think our relationship status is just as diverse as everybody else's. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I would mm. be, be – ask me in a year and we'll see where, how, we've, how things have changed. I suppose one thing I can say to that, though, is that um, I identify as a gay man myself. I have a lot of queer friends um, in my community and just by purely speaking about foster care, there is a real thirst I finally found talking about to actually become a foster carer. And I think I'm personally quite passionate about putting that word out there because I think there's still a lot of myths about um, LGBTI, people not being able to be foster carers, and it simply isn't true. And I would love to be part of the education and um, I suppose people speaking from queer experiences to be able to help communicate that message because there's a lot more that we'd love to do to get that message out there. So, Dan... Are you finding that more agencies are are interested in, you know, LGBTIQ foster carers post-marriage victory, post-marriage debate, that the bona fides that stem from that mean Mm. that agencies are now thinking of of same-sex couples or gender-diverse people as being foster carers? Um, I think it always was the case, but I work with pretty much all the foster care agencies across Victoria through Fostering Connections. And just over the past week, I've had so many agencies talk to me about how they want to work on making their agency as queer friendly as possible to make sure that they are being respectful they're making it a safe space. I think it's something it's something that they're actively pursuing and have told me they're actively pursuing. Um, and I, we're very lucky that we get to work with them and actually spread that message as a consortium across the state to cr- make sure that that's a priority in terms of what we're doing. So it's something I still think that is, as I've said, is evolving. But from just even from the stories from the carers that we've heard, it has something that has evolved a lot, even over the past couple of years, even before marriage equality. So um, I, I genuinely believe, and this is also speaking from my experience too, that we are going from strength to strength in that area. So if anyone's listening who wants to be a foster carer, what would you advise them to do? How would, how would you advise them to get the, the ball rolling? Yeah, well, luckily they can contact us at Fostering Connections. And we're a good point because no matter where you are in Victoria, you can contact us. We can give you general information about foster care. And we can also, if you're ready to take the next step, refer you through to a foster care agency in your area and get they can connect you with an initial conversation, get you along to an information night. So it's not a full commitment straight away. They will support you. They'll want to make sure that you're comfortable and you're ready and you might even think that you know you might want to come back and do it in a year's time or two years time but it's great to make that initial inquiry um I'd like to do a bit of a... I'll just give the details of that. Please okay. do. Yeah, please do. Um, so our website is www.fosteringconnections.com.au. Our number is 1-800-013-088. We have a 24-7 inquiry line. And if for some reason you don't get through to us, we'll get back to you within the next business day. So we're always there and we love to chat. So call us. <laughs> Felicity Marlowe from Queer Space and Rainbow Families and Dan Christie from Fostering Connections. Thank you so much for joining me on 3CR and sharing about foster caring. It's been awesome. Thanks, James. Thank you so much. Six to five, you are on In Your Face on 3CR and here's everything but the girl. Thank you.
Everything but the girl there before today. I am out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Thanks to our guests. They were awesome. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.